0: Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We are a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. I'm going to just open with a verse from Luke's Gospel. This is Luke 24, verse 27 through 32, and I've been reading it each week as we engage the scriptures. The context here, Jesus is resurrected and he comes up alongside two of his disciples who are walking along the road to Emmaus. And Luke writes, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly to stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And so, Lord, that's just our prayer tonight as we continue in a couple months of sitting in your scriptures, reflecting on complex things and deep things. But more than anything, we just pray that we would be like those disciples and that we would be ones whose hearts are set on fire, whose hearts burn within them. And I just pray that the scriptures would continue to open up as we age, as we continue our journeys of discipleship. We pray that they would not grow stale, but that you would come and speak to us and meet us on the road to life, yeah, and you'd set our hearts ablaze. Amen. All right, guys. Well, we are on week three of this series on handling Scripture. And the first two were a bit philosophical. Session one, I talked about the nature of Scripture as being both this divine and human library of books that have been handed down to us. And today we're going to get a little more practical, kind of bringing to bear some of the implications of that. And then two weeks ago, the second session talked about the function of Scripture, as in how and what is the Scripture trying to do in our lives as followers of Jesus. And I gave the caveat week one, and maybe two weeks ago as well, that these sessions are more of teaching. You could almost think of these like a miniature seminary class than someone coming up and preaching from Scripture. Starting next Sunday for four Sundays in a row, we're gonna have four different people in our community preach, reflecting on some of these teachings I've given through different books and, and texts in scripture. Matt's gonna kick us off this coming Sunday, then I'll do one, and then Justin Seo is gonna lead us through a text February 20th, and then Christy will wrap us up at the end of February. And there's no continual theme through these messages, we're each hitting different genres and different kind of story contexts within the canon of scripture. So the purpose is to try and model p- those who are trying to faithfully handle scripture in different parts of the text. So should be a lot of fun. But today, I'm finishing off kind of our introduction, <laughs> my two hours of introduction <laughs> comments with the topic of engaging scripture. So trying to take some of the more academic frameworks that I was presenting the last two weeks and now bringing them to bear on some more practical tools that I think can help us as we actually come to engage scripture. A couple quick recaps. Last week, I introduced what I would say is kind of the cultural model of discipleship. And on some level, even in a secular setting, the cultural model of change and transformation that permeates American culture. And it's this, we wouldn't like to call it this in the church, but it's kind of this self-help mindset that the key to transformation and change is taking information, putting it into our brains, and then once it's in our brains, we now need to make different choices and it leads to a better us. And if we keep doing that, eventually our life will improve. And I tried to kind of make the argument that when we have that flat understanding of how humans actually change and how we mature, we also then have a pretty flat understanding of what the scriptures are. And usually those two things are kind of correlated and connected together. Whether we emphasize the divinity of the Bible, like, they're golden tablets that kind of floated down from heaven. Or whether we emphasize the humanness of the Bible. Either way, we end up with it being less than it actually is. I think I gave some examples the first week of viewing Scripture as primarily a rule book or a theological answer book that we can just kind of flip to on any given philosophical question or topic and find our answer, find our verse, and pluck it out. Or even a personal love letter that's just written to me. So again, not that any of those aren't true to some degree, but I think they fall far short of what the scriptures actually are. I presented us last week with a model that I called a more a 4D model of discipleship. And this is built on kind of an idea that above the surface we have this slow track in our brains. This is what most of us culturally think of as our brain or our mind. It's conscious thought, it's where we actually reflect on things, we weigh pros and cons, it's it's the control center. But ironically, as human beings, the best neuroscience, psychology, sociology, the best wisdom from scripture would reveal to us that there's a lot going on under the surface that is actually precognitive or happening faster than conscious thought. This is our reactions and circumstances. And I laid out a framework that that underbelly of your iceberg is actually formed more by the story that you are living from, the embodied habits of your life, and then the core relationships or core attachments in your life. And all of those are happening at a level much deeper than conscious thought, and thus have a lot more control over the choices you're actually making in day-to-day life. As believers, we can, I think, use, and I think the Scripture intends for us to use our conscious thought to then shape our lives in certain patterns and ways so that we're being formed at much deeper levels than just hearing the truth or hearing good preaching or the 2D model that exists up there. I didn't say this last week, but I love this line. I heard it maybe a decade ago. I don't even know who said it. But it takes God a long time to work in a moment. And I think that speaks to the nature of formation and real maturity and change, and that there's this, this consistency of patterns on this level of stories, habits, and relationships that in the day in, day out, it doesn't necessarily feel like some dramatic change, but we're laying the foundations and frameworks for all of a sudden, in a moment, things to shift and, and to see some transformation or change. And if, if you guys, want to waste 20 minutes on YouTube sometime. Just go online and search collapsing icebergs and you can just watch when icebergs cracks or breaks and then this thing that weighs a million tons starts flipping in the water and stuff that was hidden and unseen or unaware now is being exposed to the surface. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. (laughs) Also in that teaching last week, my favorite metaphor and analogy for the journey of discipleship by comparing us to rocks and magnets. And for those who weren't here, really briefly, yes, I'm carrying magnets in my pockets. And I was the kid in high school who also carried around magic tricks in my pockets. So that probably doesn't surprise some of you. I think this formation that the Scriptures aims to actually bring about in us it's happening at this deep, deep level under the surface of our iceberg. And I gave the metaphor of a magnet. Really a magnet is just at some point it was a regular rock with all of its atoms and molecules pointing in random directions. And those molecules have electrons, they have protons. And so they basically form tiny little magnetic dipoles. And in nature, those dipoles just cancel each other out. So it's just a rock. But if you place that rock in a magnetic field for an extended period of time, it hits this critical point called saturation. And once you hit saturation, you've had enough of those molecules aligned in the same direction that now that rock starts to generate its own magnetic field. And if it stays there long enough and reaches that saturation point, you can now remove the field and it permanently will exude that force. You could, even, you could even smash it into a thousand pieces and every single one of those pieces would still have that molecular solidification, a permanent magnet. It can never be taken away. And I think in many ways, this describes the process of discipleship and formation in kind of this mysterious way that God wants to transform and change and mature us at such a deep level. And there's, there's obvious kind of pneumatological or... or Holy Spirit implications that I love in the visual of this kind of magnetic field exuding from the life of someone who has been fully saturated in their formation and in their discipleship. That doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you've arrived at some special place, but it means that your life has been so oriented in a certain pattern and position that you've begun to change on levels that are almost not explainable, not conscious. So, Jesus wants deep change for us to turn us into the type of people, not who know right Bible answers, but the type of people who can spontaneously respond with love when we are placed in environments where we feel threatened. It's called love of enemies. So this is what the Scriptures aim to do in us. They aim to make us people who could naturally love our enemies. We don't have to flex and conjure it up and try really hard. It's the same reason Paul in the New Testament uses the language of fruit of the Spirit. It's to be transformed at a level that these things just grow out of our lives. And when you cut us open, it's transformation to the core, to the deepest levels. So getting practical today, in light of some of these things, I would hope that for some of us, what I've presented the last two weeks is an expanded view of Scripture that expands even your sense of the authority of Scripture and also the importance of Scripture for shaping the life of discipleship and the life of the community. And and today we're going to get a lot more practical in, in the sense of how does this affect us as we actually come to read it as individuals, in community. I wanted to start... I'm going to read a psalm. And I want to go through three... Maybe these are my own temptations. Three types of readers or three types of postures of approaching Scripture that I I don't think are very helpful, or at least they fall short. And then I'll outline and give you kind of a category for the types of readers I think we should long to be as disciples of Jesus, okay? And I'm going to start by just reading Psalm 91, and then as I reflect through these three types, I'll give some comments on the psalm, okay? Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart and you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, The Lord is my refuge, and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent, for He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Okay, so who are our readers? And I crossed out readers and put interpreters. I'll come back to that at the end. This is what I don't want you to do as I read, go through these. I don't want you to go, mm-hmm, yeah, my cousin Stacy, she's totally that one. No, no, no. I think all of these readers are within us, or I will say at least they're within me, okay? These are competing postures that are trying to impose certain frameworks on the text when I sit down to read Scripture. And I would venture that some of this is in some of you as well. So, the first one is the unaware reader. This is the reader who engages Scripture at a simple face value. Verse uh, 11 in that psalm, they might read that. It's the verse about the angel swooping up and protecting you so you don't hit your foot against the stone. This verse teaches me that I have a guardian angel who watches over me and protects me at all times. And interestingly, this is the only verse in the entire Old Testament that could even, you could even pretend talks about guardian angels. Yet in our cultural Christianity in the West, that's baseline cultural 101 Christianity, that there's little angels, there's movies made about this and all this stuff. And so the truth of the text is obvious and simple. I don't interpret Scripture, I just, I just read it and do what it says. The Bible said it, I believe it, Let's, that's enough. So the strength of this type of reader is there's a high value for the authority of Scripture and trying to live it out and apply it. And there's a high value usually for the divinity of the text, that this is God's Word. And so that's a real strength of even the unaware reader. A weakness, I would say, unaware readers can impose their bias or just simply come up with completely inaccurate interpretations. And this can lead to a misuse of the text. I think it can also lead to imposing questions on the text that it's not trying to answer. To come to Psalm 91 and pretend that it's trying to inform you about the ontology of angelic beings, and it's not. So... um, Yeah, and I think we see this most explicitly in cultural forms of Christianity. And I think all of us have, you know, if we've been following Jesus for a while, we all probably have moments like this or have had seasons of life where we would be in this category. Next one. Oh, save us, scholars. The academic scholar. The reader who deconstructs the scripture to find the real truth, the kernel of truth hidden beneath the stalk. So, verse 11 here, it actually gives evidence of the syncretism with these other ancient cultures. Because in the ancient Near East, at this time period when this book is being written, it was common practice to believe in household family deities that watched over the daily affairs of the family. Because the cosmic gods couldn't be troubled with, you know, the daily affairs of little people. So you had these, these smaller deities. So that's clearly what's going on in this verse, Okay and these silly ancient people believed in these spiritual realities, but we as modern people know that the spiritual realm is not real. So we can understand that this is just a cultural confusion. Uh, So the truth of the text is hidden behind it, right? Behind all this cultural garb. And we with our superior modern minds can now pierce through that culture and see the real truth of what was going on. So... The scriptures are a historical document that we can critique and break apart, just like any other writing. And I would say the strength of the academic scholar is that they're giving a keen attempt at giving attention to history, context, culture, and they're really honoring the humanity of the text. They're honoring the fact that some person really wrote this in some time past, in a culture and in a place and in a land that's far different than us in the modern age. The weakness. It elevates the authority of the self over God and scripture, and also, ironically, imposes its own bias upon the text. And this is not just a modern problem. We could find parallels of this in scripture. Jesus engaged this group of religious leaders called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were known for being kind of the academic and societal elites in ancient Israel. They were the ones who were kind of most compliant with the Romans and the Romans often were paying them on the side so they had kind of extra money in their pockets, they would be considered the liberal Jews. They, they didn't accept all of the Old Testament as Scripture, actually. They were minimalists in that sense, kind of like we talked about Thomas Jefferson cutting out parts of the Bible. The Sadducees only honored the first five books as the real Bible, and, and they were prone to kind of demystifying it. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in a lot of these supernatural things. And there's this great story in Mark 12 where Jesus gets into this confrontation with the Sadducees. And this guy approaches him with the king of all hypothetical situations. There's some lady married to some guy who has six brothers. And then this guy says, well, what happens if that first brother dies, and then the law says that the next brother is supposed to marry her, and then he dies, and he goes all the way down the line, and all of them die, this poor woman, you'd think she'd get out of that family somewhere along the line. But their question is, who's her husband in eternity? Talk about imposing bad questions upon a text that it's not trying to answer. And Jesus graciously but firmly replies are you not in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God? And then he goes on to explain and give an answer to their question. But I think in many ways, this is not a new thing, this liberalism of coming to the text, um, imposing our own bias and, and almost using the text to kind of play these philosophical games and answer these Philosophical questions. The third one, the Bible expert. Yeah. This is the reader who engages the Scriptures to understand the universal principles of truth. Verse 11 in Psalm 91, actually we learn from the context of this claim and later in the New Testament, Jesus' temptation scene where Satan actually tempts Jesus with this exact Psalm to throw himself down because the angels will lift him up and... This verse is really about one's trust in God and the minute we turn it into a formula or put God to the test, we've stepped out of Him being our refuge, which is what the verse right before in Psalm 91 talks about. So again, I think this is a healthy movement of we're we're trying to place the Scriptures within their context. We're trying to make connections within the Bible. So what's wrong with it? I would say it leaves us at a place of the truth lies in the text And the right biblical method enables us to know the objective truth of Scripture. So this strength is its attention to history, to context, while remaining committed to application. I mean, in many ways, this sounds great. Yeah, that's what we should be doing. It's trying to honor both the human and the divine side of Scripture. But I think the weakness is it can lead to some theological blindness and arrogance. This is the Pharisee, right? This This is the one who knows the truth while everyone else is deceived. So when we say biblical authority, what we really mean is my understanding of what the Bible says is the biblical authority. And as faithful believers who are trying to follow Jesus and trying to honor the authority of Scripture, this is our greatest risk, always. So the Pharisees, They were a group of religious conservatives. They were less urban, more rural-based than the Sadducees. And another great interaction in John 5. This is this classic line. Jesus is in this interaction talking to the Pharisees, and He says in verse 37, You have never heard His voice nor seen His form, nor does His word dwell within you. For you do not believe in the one He sent. You study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. And these are the very Scriptures that testify about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me and have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. And what I think can happen if we approach the text as a theological answer book is we can create this almost barrier between us and the text where it's our job to read it, understand it, and then go and police it for everyone else. And all the while, we're so focused on reading the text, we don't let the text come and read us. We're in some ways no better off than the unaware reader. So we could probably put more things up there, more types of readers... But I would say the aim as we come to the text is to be a faithful reader. This is the reader who engages Scripture both to understand and allow it to deconstruct the self. So I'm not just coming to preside with my authority over the text and judge it. I'm coming to the text with humility, letting it to preside over me and judge me. Verse 11, all those other things are really interesting But aside from what really goes on in the angelic realm or the ancient Near East or objective theological principle, that verse leaves me with the question, Lord, are you my refuge? This week, right now, today, have you been my refuge? And even as we're in worship and I'm preparing this, I'm just sitting there feeling the weightiness of conviction of no, the Lord's not been my refuge lately. He's not the place that I'm going to cope with my anxieties, my fears, my struggles And the faithful reader is not just the one who's merely trying to pull the truth out of the book. The faithful reader is the one who's trying to become consumed with the story and become a part of the story. The Scriptures are trying to make us into the types of people who could write Psalm 91, not just read it and understand it. The Scriptures seek to form us to be like the authors of the very library of books that we hold. And so the truth here is not something that I can come and possess, and now there I have it all in my prefrontal cortex. I know all the truth. The truth is something that comes and possesses me, that consumes me. It has mystery, and it's bigger than me. I can't even fathom or contain it all. The truth possesses us. Scripture catches us up into the story of God. I am always learning to let my confidence rest in Him, not my own knowledge or merit. And the Scripture may indeed teach universal truths about life and the world, but inevitably I am a human subject and I come to the text with all kinds of mess and baggage. And until those truths come in here, they're no good to me. Until they go below the surface of that iceberg and tap into the deepest parts of my humanity, they're not going to bring lasting change, transformation, maturity. The strengths of the faithful reader They hold on to some of the strengths of the other three while embracing limits and aiming for transformation over information. The weakness might leave you feeling kind of uncomfortable, wrestling with tensions, learning to trust in God when your questions aren't even answered, embracing pain, suffering, aspects of mystery, and ultimately it pushes dependence upon God rather than our own individual humanity. So some reflections on these four types of readers I would just simply say all of us interpret. There is no such thing as no interpretation and if if you read an English Bible then you're already reading an interpretation because a whole plethora of people gathered together to try and faithfully translate this book, so that you could read it in your mother tongue. And there's thousands of translations in other tongues. And how amazing, just like Jesus incarnating, how amazing that the truth of this message, the truth of what the Bible's trying to do in us, can be translated into all languages and tongues. That people could read about Jesus in their own heart language. And that the message and what's actually important is not contingent upon getting the verb tense right or picking the exact right word. So you are already reading an interpretation if you, unless you're reading in Hebrew or Greek. I love this quote from Fee and Stewart. He writes this, he says, The antidote to bad interpretation is not no interpretation, but good interpretation. And we're going to unpack that a little bit later. And and really this interpretive process is necessary to acknowledge because interpretation of the Bible is demanded by the tension that exists between the eternal relevance of the divine aspects of the library of books and then the cultural particularity that is the humanness of the text. And interpretation is trying to take both of those seriously. It's demanded of us as readers. And I love this. This is a quote by a guy named Joel Green. He says, what separates us from the meaning of the text most often is not so much its antiquity, meaning that it's from some other culture or some other world and we can't understand it. He says, no, the thing that separates us is its unhandy, inconvenient claim upon our lives. And I I would just assure us today that any gaps we feel oh man, it feels like I need to have a PhD in Old Testament studies to understand some of the parts of this book. I would say the the greatest gap between our comprehension of what God's trying to speak to us through the Bible does not lie in cultural difference or even linguistic difference. It lies within our own human heart. It lies within our own resistance to the claim it's trying to make upon us. And I've been kind of, digging around this for the last couple weeks, whether we elevate the Bible as golden tablets or we just kind of consciously or not de-elevate its authority in our life, I think both of those approaches, we end up relegating the Bible to just float up at the top of our iceberg, just float up at the surface level. And we turn the Bible into this two-dimensional flat reference book. And I, I love this visual of as we come to the text. We don't come to just read it and understand it, but we come submissively to let it read and understand us. I'll just read this part, and then we'll get on to a couple tools and practicals. So the irony is that the first three types of readers are imposing their own bias on the text. And this posture of a faithful reader, part of what we're doing is just acknowledging our bias and brokenness that we bring to the text. From the start, this is the basic reason for our need for the Gospel. God had to come and meet us in our mess, in our bias, in our culture. We could not overcome it to get to Him. We had to come to rely on His sufficiency. And so we must come to rely on the sufficiency of the Bible in the same way we rely on the sufficiency of God's grace. They're not two separate categories. So the same grace that covers our sins covers our inadequacies as we come to the text. And the ideal reader, I said it before, is becoming the type of people who could not just understand a Psalm 91, but write a Psalm 91. That we would be the type of people who know God as our refuge. That understand what that feels like to come to God with like what Heather was praying for earlier, with our fears and our anxieties and have no other place to go. We are utterly dependent. The scriptures long to make us people of dependence, not inform us above the surface of our minds. So I'm going to go through some really practical things here. I love this visual and metaphor. I heard it probably... 15 years ago, and it's always stuck with me. I think many of us, we think about our Christian faith and this constellation and web of beliefs that we hold about God, about ourselves, about the world. And in many ways, without realizing it, we have set those beliefs up as so interdependent on one another that it's like a house of cards. Where if you touch one... You're touching them all. And if one of them goes down, they all go down. And what I would invite us to do as we're trying to become faithful readers of Scripture, to help us understand that we don't have to hold our beliefs at the exact same equal value, right? You don't need to hold to your view of baptism pedo-baptism with babies versus adult baptism, t- with the same level of intensity that we hold to your identity as a forgiven son or daughter of God. Those are not equal beliefs. And I would say this belief is not contingent upon what you believe here. And throughout the course of your journey of following Jesus, I would guess you might even change that belief. So, I would invite us to think about beliefs in a series of concentric circles. And again, I'll talk about the bottom in a second, but above the surface, this is our confessional beliefs, what we think we believe about God, about the world, about ourselves, about people. Maybe you don't like these words, but what I mean by them, dogma meaning the essentials of our faith. The things that we can look across history, past, Across Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Protestant, and we can see, wow, Christians have pretty much believed and practiced these things for 2,000 years since Jesus walked the earth. And then doctrine, this is getting into the category where you're a local church and you're a body and you have to make decisions about things and some churches might do this, some might do that, and at the end of the day we need to have some charity with each other but we do maybe need to hold to certain beliefs on certain doctrines and say, hey, this is what we're committing to. And then we have to walk that out with love and, and charity. And then beliefs. I would say this is, <laughs> this is like the guardian angel category, you know, or the nephilim in Genesis or whatever category you want. And we can talk about them. We can have opinions. But, man, please do not lose sleep over them because we just don't really know. And the Bible's maybe not even trying to always answer those questions. And then on the underbelly, I would say, this is almost more important. And I would say if you lose this, you lose the relevancy of all of that above the surface. If if fundamentally our relationship and our attachment to God, our conception of who He is and who He says we are and who other people are and the character we're forming and the communion we have with brothers and sisters and enemies, if that is not being formed, man, the stuff above does not even matter. It's just... It's just the Pharisees searching the Scriptures thinking that they'll have life in them when they're missing the substance of the transformation Jesus longs to bring. He's right in front of them and they can't see it because they're so focused above the surface that they don't see the blindness of their own hearts. And we could unpack this for hours and hours, but simply I just want to offer us as you come to the text, not everything has to weigh the same or carry the same significance. You have permission to disagree with people you love in the body of Christ. All right. So there's some different ways to engage scripture. I'm going to end here kind of talking through a framework for studying the scriptures. And I'd give us at least three categories to think about engaging scripture. You have study, which is a more broad, trying to take into account the whole. And I'll talk about what I mean by that as I unpack it. And then we have a posture that we might call meditation or devotional reading, right? That's trying to go a little deeper into a specific text. It might be a little more prayerful, a little more mystical sometimes. Not mystical in the sense of wanting unique interpretations, but I would say mystical and prayerful in the sense of wanting to let this text speak to you. Reading that Psalm 91 and saying, Lord, where have I not been abiding? Expose my insecurities and fears that I'm... Right? It's coming to the text with the posture of the Holy Spirit coming to speak, not just to understand context or history or in the mind. And then thirdly, I would say the oldest form of reading Scripture, in community, orally, reading it in large chunks of text. That's why in house churches we practice oral reading. Often you're reading a chapter or two at a time, right? And that's trying to push a certain type of understanding because you can't just get lost in all the nuances and details when... You can't even remember it all when you listen to the text orally. So then you can dialogue and even in that room hopefully be exposed to diversity of opinions and diversity of backgrounds and that that would help you consider things that maybe individually you wouldn't have seen. So, study. I'll just read through some of these so that I don't go off on long tangents. The first posture, I would say, when we come to try and study the text is a posture of prayer. And this is submitting to the divinity and authority of the text. And two parts to this, I would say, we're we're trusting in the reality that the Scriptures are a work of the Holy Spirit. And so the same Spirit that was present leading those authors, if we have a chance or hope of understanding the text, that same Holy Spirit is in us leading us. So the same spirit that's helping author it is the same spirit illuminating and helping us comprehend. And secondly, man, I could talk a long time on this. I don't know if there's a more important teaching that kind of burdens my heart in our generation and in our culture than the fear of the Lord. I think if we do not have a biblical, deep knowledge and understanding of the fear of the Lord, we're going to be hard-pressed to find wisdom, any wisdom. And in the Scriptures, I mean, we know some of the famous verses in Proverbs. We're, we're commended in Proverbs to desire wisdom above all else, and the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And I've taught on this. Enough. I would simply say the fear of the Lord is the recognition of God's reality. The fear of the Lord is not a command you need to follow, but it's, it's a recognition of the reality. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard called it, the infinite qualitative difference between us and God. It is simply recognizing the nature of how creation is set up and arranged. And if we lack that fundamental starting point of recognizing ourselves as clay before a potter, creature before creator, man, every presupposition we will have from there is just off course already. So the fear of the Lord is a reality to recognize, not a, not a rule to follow, not a command to obey. God doesn't want you to be afraid of Him. And we know that because every time in Scripture that someone encounters God or encounters an angel or whatever, a burning bush, a theophany, right? they fall on, the, on their face, and the first thing said and communicated is, do not be afraid. So, the fear of the Lord is a posture of the recognition of that reality, but then God's character comes swooping in, and we realize, and the whole story is testifying, culminating in Jesus to the fact of his unfailing love. And so, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it doesn't end there. Wisdom brings us to the place of God's unfailing love. And to keep the nerdy analogy going, I would say these are the two great truths that form. The poles of that magnet that orient our discipleship and orient our our approach as we come to the Scriptures. The fear of the Lord and then the trust in His unfailing love. Second posture. To observe. And this is really a, a, a phase of respecting the humanity of the text. And I already kind of dove into this a little bit earlier. But we do not need to be Greek and Hebrew scholars. We have the privilege of translations that faithful people who speak Greek and Hebrew have have labored over to create. And so I would simply recommend, as you want to try and understand a text better, engage it in a few translations. Engage it in... uh, KGV, engage it in the NLT, engage it in the ESV, and I could talk to you and expand on the spectrum and how those translations differ. Some are more literal, some are more updated for the common tongue, and a whole spectrum between. If you are struggling with a verse, try reading it in a different translation. See if that helps bring some enlightenment to maybe a a meaning or understanding that you're struggling with. And then we have a few other categories here of Right? We need to respect the literary genre. A psalm is a, is a metaphor-filled love language. It is not a scientific theology textbook. And so we need to respect the genre of the, the text. We need to the, respect the narrative context within that book. And then we need to be aware of some history and culture. And again, these are not unattainable things. You do not need a graduate degree to do this you could simply hop on Google and check out a Bible project video. And you'll get a five-minute summary of literary genre, cultural context. You'll get brought in the loop to all of this. Okay, interpreting, third part. So now we are trying to discern the meaning, both for them as the author trying to communicate it, for us as a present-day community, and then for me as an individual. And there's layers to this interpretation but we're, we're simply trying to let the text update our map. It's like we're downloading a fresh wave of modifications from the cloud. And I think we could think about this kind of in those two categories. There's the above the surface of what is something I could change in my beliefs or my thoughts, but then there's the below the surface of how is this, how is this significant for shaping the story I'm living from, the practices I'm engaged in, and the people that I'm attached to. And lastly, significance, or I like to call it embody. So now we need to live into this reality. And again, some of this will be above the surface. It will be thoughts and actions. But more than that, we could deduce from a Bible verse that we should be more loving, but then the question isn't just how do we now flex and try and be more loving. It's how do I commit to patterns of behavior or people that are going to help me become a more loving person. So we're trying to reflect on our discipleship on a much deeper level than just reading a verse and trying to make a weekly application. Okay. So in closing here, I would simply say this is a great formula. Some of us might feel like a snooze fest might feel a little linear I would say this is some postures that you will embody over the course of your life it's not something you need to live out in every moment of engagement with scripture and I would say more important actually than even this simple method of praying, observing, interpreting and then embodying are the rule of life and the practices and the relationships and and the habits that you are living in as you do that And we talk about a rule of life a lot around here, and the reality is whether we are being intentional about our rule of life or not, whether you come to Matt's rule of life conference on February 18th or not, you have a rule of life. It's already operating and forming you into a certain type of person. And so the question is not if, but what, and I would say one of the greatest Challenges for us as modern people as we come to the Bible and as you engage in church, in house church, for personal devotion, is what stories, what practices, and what people are shaping your interpretation of the text. And for us, stories that might be political stories that we buy into, visions of change and transformation that we put our hope in, whether it's on the left or the right, or it could be cultural stories of comfort and economic whatever, (laughs) In terms of habits, it might be how is technology shaping the practices of your life? How is the busyness of living in, a, in an urban city shaping your life? And finally, who are the core people or lack of relationships, right? Are we, are we attached and loving people outside the church? Do we have friends who aren't believers? How is that shaping and forming how we read the text? And I'll end with this quote from Joel Green. I quoted him earlier he says, what separates us from the biblical text is not so much its antiquity, but its unhandy, inconvenient claim on our lives. And he continues on further. And he says, we should not visit these ancient texts as though they were alien territory. We should not come to them as visitors at all, but rather we should make our home in them, even while recognizing that to do so would be to declare ourselves strangers in the world we presently live. We should take on the persona of Scripture's address, allowing the terms of these texts to address us, to critique us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to instruct us, and to ultimately shape us into who we're becoming. And I've said this multiple times the last couple weeks, but as we engage the Scriptures, it's trying to form us, not at a level of just cognitive information and knowledge, but to shape us into the type of people who could be put into threatening situations, scary situations, confrontational situations, and we naturally respond with love. And the next month, we hope to get some different voices modeling how to do this, how to faithfully engage it. So yeah, this week, I believe Matt's going to be teaching on Titus. So if you want to do a little prep, you could sit and read and dwell in the book of Titus this week thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org